This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth and Mission. For years, San Francisco has relied on single-room occupancy units, or SROs, to shelter its most vulnerable residents. You might be familiar with these buildings. They're concentrated in the Tenderloin and South of Market. Many of them were built decades ago. They're kind of like dorms. The rooms are small, and tenants often share bathrooms and kitchens. And by most vulnerable residents, I'm referring to more than just the unhoused population. So those struggling with mental health issues, substance use disorder, and, you know, they're often elderly and have physical disabilities as well. That's Trisha Thadani. She and fellow Chronicle reporter Joaquin Palomino spent the last year examining the conditions of San Francisco's SRO buildings. They're a cornerstone of the city's $160 million program called Permanent Supportive Housing. And the buildings are meant to provide more than just a roof over tenants' heads. The city knows that because this population is struggling with so many issues, they also need support. So that's a core tenant of this type of housing where you're supposed to have these on-site case managers that can help tenants overcome these issues that were exacerbated from their years of living on the streets. Over the years, several San Francisco mayors have made it a point to move populations that are struggling indoors. Most recently, Mayor Lyndon Breed has been clear that no one, including those addicted to drugs, should live on the streets no matter what. We need to use every tool within our disposal to get that person into treatment or into an environment that's going to lead to change and not just leave people on the streets in the ways that we have in the past. But what happens after people are placed inside these SRO hotels? Trisha and Joaquin went inside 16 of them to better understand what life is like there. They also interviewed more than 150 supportive housing tenants and employees. You'll hear some of the tenants' voices, though we are not identifying them by name in order to protect their identities. Trisha and Joaquin also reviewed thousands of pages of documents, including police and medical examiner reports, inspection records, city contracts, and internal city emails. Their investigation found disastrous results. You can read it now at sfchronicle.com SROS. Tenants say they're suffering and that the living conditions are insanitary. This place is just disgusting rats, roaches, and nasty. And the bathrooms is to be shit all on the walls. And just, it's just terrible, you know, and that's, that's a ha- health hazard, too, because some people in here are sick. Unstable. So, I mean, people broke into my room. I slept with a knife. I still sleep with a taser and a knife, you know, like, because it was it was really triggering for me. And under-resourced. Just say management don't care. So yeah. the people that work here don't care. They do what they want to do. And that's hardly nothing. While San Francisco continues to pursue its ambitious goal of expanding its housing capacity for those who need it, residents who have been living in the city's old housing stock, sometimes for decades, say they feel like they're slowly declining inside, out of sight from the public's eye. And they don't want the tourism to see this shit on the streets all the time, but as much as they can, they try to fucking shove them in these sardine boxes for them to just be quiet and die in here. I got a lot of things going on with me, but just sitting there, I feel like I'm just wasting. Yeah. I'm just existing, you know, I'm ready to go. 
I'm not listening. That's how a, a place like this make you feel. Chronicle reporters Trisha Thadani and Joaquin Palomino are here to explain what they discovered in their year-long investigation of San Francisco's SRO hotels. You'll also hear more from some of the tenants they spoke to. Trisha, Joaquin, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Joaquin, let's start with a bit of background history about San Francisco's SROs. How did they become a housing option for some of the city's poorest and most vulnerable populations? So, yeah, most of the the city's residential hotels were built after the 1906 earthquake. And back then, they housed mostly working single men, so people who are often coming through San Francisco, merchant marines, agricultural workers, other laborers. And they're typically used as sort of temporary stays for people. And then starting in the 1980s, San Francisco started to use a lot of the buildings as shelter for homeless people. The Hospitality House, a shelter for the homeless and the unemployed, crowded at midday. At night, people are being turned away. As part of the city's program, the homeless were to be temporarily housed in hotels. A thousand units right here in the Tenderloin. And then in the 1990s and 2000s, and especially under Gavin Newsom, under a program called Care Not Cash, started converting a lot of these buildings into permanent supportive housing. And so they were moving people in and and they were offering them a permanent home with support services. And that's really where the system sort of blew up in San Francisco, where under Newsom, we saw a lot of these SROs transition into permanent housing for formerly homeless people. So in 2016, former Mayor Ed Lee establishes the city's Department of Homelessness in an effort to streamline the city's response to the problem. How does that change the way SROs are run in the city? So before the Department of Homelessness existed, San Francisco's homelessness response system was spread across all these different agencies. So former Mayor Ed Lee came in and was like, "Okay, I'm going to consolidate under one department. I will call upon all the departments to work together with our community-based organizations, with our advocates and our national experts to change and reform our government and hopefully other governments. And we are going to create a new department, a department with a mission to end homelessness here in San Francisco. And while that simplified things in some ways, the way that permanent supportive housing is like funded and run is still a very, very complex system. So trying to distill it in like simplest terms. So the Department of Homelessness will fund these nonprofits. Um, So they're in charge of the contracts. They're in charge of the funding. And then the nonprofits will lease with private landlords who own these buildings. And then the nonprofits are then responsible for the day-to-day management. It's sometimes not always clear who is responsible for what. So these older buildings become a vital housing option in the city. And you both did a year-long investigation. Tell me what did that involve and what were you looking to find out? Yeah, so it's long been known among city leaders that um, some of these buildings, particularly those that are concentrated in the Tenderloin and uh, on 6th Street and Soma, some of them have really just devolved into these really poor conditions and, you know, and at times are really just these inhumane places for people to live. I mean, you have ceilings falling down, you have rats running around, roaches, bed bugs, like you name it. And, you know, it's just been this thing that seems to have just been accepted in San Francisco. And what Joaquin and I wanted to do from this year-long investigation is figure out, like, why these conditions have been allowed to persist. Like, who's responsible? Because every 
city leader that we've brought this up to, every advocate, every nonprofit provider has, no one's been surprised by what we found. So we really dug into budgets and dug into, you know, the history and contracts to really get at the meat of like, what, why is this allowed to happen? And this involved talking to many, many tenants, right? Give me a sense of what the on the ground reporting looked like for a year. It was a lot of hanging out outside of buildings, talking to people as they were coming and going when sort of COVID restrictions eased, getting into some of the buildings, meeting tenants. I mean, I think in total, we talked to between 150 and 200 residents and and also frontline staff members in these buildings. And you start to hear a lot of sort of the same stories. Tenants have complaints about their living conditions, but also, you know, these SROs can be really restrictive. You can't have visitors um, unless they have a government-issued ID. You can only have so many overnight visitors uh, a month. People just often don't have keys, so you can let yourself in. You have to be buzzed in. Mm-hmm. So there's there's all of these sort of limitations that and frustrations among residents that we found when we were talking to mm-hmm. them. Yeah, and we spent a lot of time with residents in, in these buildings and and saw just like a lot of really sad things. There was one woman in particular who used to live in, she said she used to live in Laguna Honda, which is a a nursing facility in San Francisco for very sick and disabled people. She's in a wheelchair and she said that she could not make it to the bathroom, you know, as often as she needed to go. So she had like a portable hospital toilet in her room and her room was maybe 80, 85 square feet. And she was the one who had to like empty that out all the time and just kind of seeing this very sick elderly woman um, just stuck in that room when she needs way more support was just a very heartbreaking thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, hearing these stories, talking to nearly 200 people about it, it seems like people were eager to share their stories, right? These are people that felt invisible or unheard by the city. Yeah, I mean, one thing that stuck with me, I talked to a uh, actually tenant organizer very early on in the reporting, and he said that he always hears sort of the same complaints, which is that people don't feel like anyone listens to them and they and mm-hmm. they feel like they're treated like a child. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think having reporters from, you know, the Chronicle coming, willing to hear people's stories, it was not hard to talk to people. Some people were afraid because the housing situation can be really tenuous. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, people are really eager Mm -hmm. to share their stories. So to back up a little bit, we know that people are funneled through SROs to get back on their feet. Do they do a good job of actually keeping people out of homelessness in the long term? So that data is really hard to come by. In the short term, tenants typically stay housed for at least a year or they exit in what's called good standings, which uh, typically means either they weren't evicted or they didn't return to homelessness. Beyond that, there's not a lot of information. Um, The few sort of data points we could find on long-term retention didn't look great. So there was a study in 2016 that looked at long-term retentions in some of the least resourced supportive housing SROs. And that found that within four years, two-thirds left And of those people, many appear to at least go back to homelessness. Mm. And then more recently in 2020, there was a survey of homeless people in San Francisco that found that about one in five, which could amount to thousands of people currently on the streets, previously lived in supportive housing. Mm. And so the short-term retention, you know, at least from the limited records we could see look good. The long-term retention didn't. But ultimately, there's just not great data out there. The city's not tracking this. And if you think about it, I mean, where else are these people going to go. 
permanent supportive housing, the Department of Homelessness, when it was created, like PSH was seen as sort of the stepping stone, like you said, for people to get back on their feet. But in San Francisco's like exorbitantly expensive housing market, you know, there's just not many other places for people to go. So they end up just kind of being stuck in these units. And and that's a sentiment we heard from a lot of tenants of just sort of this like dread of, oh, I thought I would just be here for a couple of years, but now it's been 10 or 15 years and they don't really see a way out. The housing might work fine for someone or be, you know, at least adequate enough when they're 50 years old and able-bodied, but as they age in place, like it, it can be a really hard environment for seniors, people's physical disabilities. And and a lot of the tenants in these buildings are seniors and have physical disabilities as well. So you sort of sense sort of increasing desperation among some residents in these buildings. So Joaquin, this investigation reveals that many of these buildings are understaffed and under-resourced. We'll get into those details in a bit, but this isn't a new problem. How long has this been going on for? Is this basically since San Francisco has been utilizing these buildings as supportive housing? In short, yes. And to be clear, there are some of these SROs that were actually set up to have a decent amount of funding, but the bulk of them were never set up to have that level of support. And so you have case managers overseeing 80, 100 tenants. That's five to six times higher than federal recommendations really low pay for all of the frontline staff members. So you see it's frequent turnover. And these issues have have always existed. And and in our reporting, we found they've, they've existed primarily because the city has set this really ambitious and noble goal of housing as many people as they can. But in doing so, they have really undercut and underfunded some of these programs. So, so you're sacrificing quality for, for quantity. And so I want to get into what you actually observed in the reporting that you did, visiting these buildings, talking to tenants. I mean, some of these conditions are really terrible. Broken elevators, which left people stranded in their rooms, rodents, mold, no power, no heat. There's a long list. What are some of the main patterns that you both observed in your reporting? One thing that stood out to me in a lot of these buildings is you'd be walking down the halls and you'd notice like multiple rooms that would have the door sealed by the medical examiner. Mm. And so it's just the, the sort of reminder for tenants in the building that, you know, their neighbors are frequently dying, often of drug overdoses, we found. Mm. And it, it led to a lot of despair. Like the it was incredibly traumatizing for a lot of the tenants. We would hear stories about Bodies being sort of left undiscovered for days or weeks, things like that. This building here, yeah. I don't feel safe in there at all because uh, they got somebody in there dying every week. I mean, there are people dying there every other every, every other day. You'd be like, what's that smell? That someone's dead, you know? And it was just very hard to, to hear these stories. And then when you go in the buildings and you see these rooms sealed, and it's just this reminder that there's there's a lot of sort of suffering and pain that, that surrounds some of these tenants. Yeah. And... You know, you'd also sometimes walk down the hallways and you'd hear some people yelling. You'd hear a lot of commotion. Like, there's just a lot of restlessness in the hotels. That makes it hard for some tenants to just kind of, like, live their everyday lives. You know, and then there was other things, like you, you'd mentioned the rats and the rodents. Um, one scene that just, like, I cannot get out of my head, um, I was in one tenant's room and this cat had jumped through this ground floor window 
and then parks itself outside of this small hole in his molding. And I asked the tenant, I was like, what is the cat doing? And he was like, well, mice come out so frequently that the cat Mm. just knows it just needs to wait. Mm. And so to me, the fact that this cat was conditioned to know that mice would come out so frequently just, you know, really showed the scope of the problem. You know, you'd be in these tenants' rooms and you would also, like, it would reek of the garbage across the hall. You know, you'd go into the bathrooms and toilets would be clogged and they would just smell very unpleasant and just don't seem like a place you'd really want to want to go. Yeah, this um, one resident I talked to, I mean, the sort of thing he said stuck with me, which is if, if you have any trauma, this building is going to enhance it. Mm. And the people coming into these buildings often have a lot of trauma and, yeah. and they're trying to overcome it. And it, it can be a really hard environment to do that. More with Joaquin Palomino and Trisha Thadani after a quick break. How have the operators of these SRO buildings responded to their investigations findings? And what do Mayor Breed and the city's Department of Homelessness have to say about the conditions that tenants are living in? We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. I'm back with reporters Joaquin Palomino and Trisha Thadani. We're discussing their investigation of San Francisco's SROs, which are part of the city's permanent supportive housing program. They spoke to over 150 tenants during their year-long investigation. Here's one of them, a 66-year-old SRO resident describing his living conditions to Joaquin. All of my health conditions and problems that I have had since I've been up in this place, my, my, my sugar level... My, my blood pressure, everything, my breathing. I, my allergies got so, so tremendous and my kidneys have started dysfunctioning because of the health conditions up in these places. I've seen so many people die up in here and then that, that the ventilation is very bad. I mean, it's so bad to the point where I have to take it come outside sometimes just to be able to breathe. If you could have anything improved there, what would it be? What I would have improved when they should try to trans, try to get some of the elderly people up out of there yeah. and move them into some better places instead of just holding them up in there until they die. Joaquin, listening to this man's account is heart-wrenching, especially because we know so many of these tenants have such a wide range of needs. Aside from health code issues, SRO buildings can also foster unsafe environments for the residents where they can face violence and harassment. Tell me more about that. So the city in recent years made a decision to house the most vulnerable people in supportive housing. And so people who have been on the streets longer, who have endured in a lot of cases a lot more trauma, have more challenging mental health conditions, physical health conditions. And so there has been this effort to to sort of house a population that can at times be really challenging. And so we would talk to a lot of tenants and look at records. It, it, you'd often find a lot of problems stemming from sort of the small group of residents in these buildings who just were not getting the support they needed or were really struggling to adjust to the housing environment. And so you'd see sort of frequency of, of crime in some buildings. Um, tenants' rooms get broken into a lot. Assaults. People don't feel safe. And these are things that I... I don't think need to be inevitable to this housing. I mean, I think if you mm-hmm. provide better support services, if you provide 
better just oversight and monitoring in general. You try and create a stronger community in these buildings. You're not going to be able to get rid of all of these problems, but you could probably get rid of a lot of them. And so I want to get into that because we're hearing about all these issues happening in these buildings. So I want to talk about accountability. How have the people who manage these buildings, these nonprofit operators, how have they responded to your investigation? So for this investigation, we looked at thousands of pages of public records, and we reached out to several nonprofit operators. Some declined to talk, but others did give a response, including the Tenderloin Housing Clinic, or THC, which has a third of the permanent supportive housing SROs in the city. And in the public records we analyzed, we found a lot of issues in many of these buildings in particular, including rodent and vermin infestations, collapsing ceilings, clogged bathrooms, and city contracts also showed a good number of their buildings are pretty underfunded. And so when we spoke to Randy Shaw, who runs THC, he defended his buildings as being very high quality and said that some of them were beautiful and that they address issues as quickly as they can. And he didn't seem to acknowledge the reality that a lot of his tenants were living in conditions that are detrimental to their physical and mental health. Instead, there was this constant blame on the tenants for causing a lot of these issues in the buildings, like, for example, attracting pests and rodents. And he also put a lot of blame on the city for not funding or providing enough resources for him to adequately staff these programs with enough case managers or janitors. Well, this also brings up the, a good question is, Joaquin, we keep hearing in the headlines all the time, San Francisco is spending millions and millions of dollars on the homelessness crisis. So how could it be that these buildings that are supported by the city are so run down? So I I, I think the like the big number kind of shadows how little some of these buildings actually get on a per unit basis. Mm-hmm. We're looking at some of these buildings and between, you know, rent that they're collecting from tenants because the tenants do pay rent and city funds, they're getting maybe $1,600 a month to lease the buildings, provide support services, provide 24-hour staffing at the desk. I mean, do all of these things that really is not a lot considering the population that that is being housed. Um, I actually had one expert we spoke to and he he phrased it really well where he said if if – your goal is to house homeless people, that might seem like it's sufficient. But if the goal is to house people with mental and physical disabilities, seniors, some of these really vulnerable people, and provide robust support to help them sort of rebuild their lives, I mean, it's it's nothing. And an important thing to note is, you know, with the city, the city this year has $1.1 billion to spend on homelessness. But the bulk of that comes from this 2018 ballot measure called Prop C, which a lot of San Franciscans will probably remember as this business tax to raise money for homeless services. Big corporations are making record profits and just got a huge tax break. But the middle class is struggling. Prop C is a common sense plan. The top 1% of businesses pay their fair share to tackle homelessness for all of us. But a key part of that is that it can only be spent on new things. So you legally cannot spend any money from Prop C into like sort of bolstering this existing system, you know, pouring it into these buildings to like upgrade elevators or to upgrade the infrastructure and stuff like that. And so that unfortunately like 
continues this trend that we found in our reporting that goes all the way back to Newsom, where you have these city leaders that are really prioritizing sort of the new thing when it comes to homelessness. So we're opening new buildings and funding new programs and creating all these new outreach teams. But while they've been focusing on sort of the new shiny things and the press conferences and the press releases and the headlines that come with that, we found that they, there's just been this kind of widespread neglect of this existing stock. And we're seeing a similar pattern with Breed. And while like a lot of the money that she has to spend can only be spent on new things because of Prop C, we really haven't seen these sort of subsequent investments from other parts of her budget. So how has the Department of Homelessness responded to this investigation? This seems really important to point out the fact that existing tenants in these buildings that have been living there for years are subjected to these conditions. They don't seem to have a way for improvement. So the Department of Homelessness has a new leader named Shireen McSpadden, and she came in less than a year ago. Um, so she really did in- inherit this system that has been built over over years. But when we went to her, I mean, again, she was not surprised. No one was surprised by our findings. But she was like, yes, I I recognize this is a really big problem and I'm working on it. But for a system that has been sort of underinvested in for so long and like a city budget that doesn't really allow me to invest into these older programs, like we really need to figure out how to move funding around. She did seem to have a commitment to increasing funding for this older stock. But she did also note that it will be kind of a trade-off. So if we use our finite resources to pour into these older programs, that might make it more difficult for us to keep investing in the new programs. Mm -hmm. And Joaquin, what has Mayor Breed said about all this? So we didn't get very much time to talk to Mayor Breed. Her staff only made her available for about 15 minutes for a phone call. We spoke extensively to the Department of Homelessness, but uh, when we talked to Mayor Breed, she really did push the responsibility onto the nonprofits in a lot of ways and 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 called for more accountability and more oversight of of the providers and, and to ensure that the money that they are being provided is being spent well. The Department of Homelessness was supposed to have a system, like a, an accountability and oversight system in place by 2019, uh, and it keeps getting pushed back and pushed back, which Mayor Breed attributed uh, in large part to the pandemic, which sort of derailed a lot of things. And and to her credit, she is in the process right now of massively expanding supportive housing in the city, due in large part to Prop C and all the money that is available, which which Mayor Breed actually did oppose, but now she's sort of benefiting from, from the funding that's coming in. And so She's funding a lot of what's called sort of scattered site housing vouchers, which is an approach used in a lot of other cities where you house formerly homeless people in privately rented units and, and you provide sort of roving support services to them. It's it's When it's funded right, it's proven to be really effective. It's something San Francisco's rarely done. And then the buildings she is opening are being funded at much higher levels than the old ones. So they're going to have a lot more money for property management, for support services. They're also targeting buildings with private bathrooms because that is – Honestly, one of the biggest complaints from tenants is just not having a private bathroom. In-unit kitchenettes, so so trying to move away from this model that that really Newsom expanded a lot of, and Edley as well, of leasing these SROs where people are sort of forced to live in this sort of semi-congregate mm-hmm. setting and, and sort of trying to get something more like just an apartment for people. So – I want to ask the both of you, I mean, some people listening to this could critique the situation and potentially say, 
The city has these big, ambitious goals to get people off the streets. They've had that ambition for a long time. But maybe it seems like a bit of an unfair burden to put it on nonprofit operators to really make sure people get back on their feet successfully. Is that a fair assessment? Like, you know, there's some finger pointing happening. More resources are needed. More accountability is needed. You know, who are we supposed to sort of look to in terms of real accountability here for this issue? This is definitely a system-wide issue that we found. You know, we went into it looking like to your question of like, who is the one person that is responsible? But what we found was, you know, there's this whole tangle of actors here. There's the private landlords, there's the nonprofits, there's the Department of Homelessness, there's the mayor, there's, you know, the advocates, etc. But really, at the end of the day, the buck does stop with the city, because they're the ones who are making the funding decisions and also making the decisions of who they enter into these contracts with. So yeah, during the course of a reporting, everyone was pointing fingers at each other. And while there is some validity to that, the main people that have to take responsibility for this is the city. So that's Mayor London Breed, and that is the Department of Homelessness. And they're the ones who need to answer for this. So this has been such an extensive project, a long investigation, and I would imagine, you know, pretty taxing to listen to these really horrible living conditions and to witness it. What are you, Joaquin, walking away from this with a keener understanding of what's sort of your big takeaway after this very long investigation? I mean, in a nutshell, people are just living in conditions that they shouldn't have to. And there's a lot of resiliency and a lot of strength that we also witnessed in in these tenants. I mean, people look out for each other in this really, you know, great way sometimes, but also they shouldn't have to, right? You know, we heard stories about tenants who, when the elevator breaks, they would let the person who was stranded on their floor sleep in their room for three days. Mm-hmm. And there's this, this like, real community in some of these buildings among the tenants where they they look out for each other, but but they're also people are just living in conditions that that they want you to have to. And it's, it's people who really need and deserve a lot more. Mm-hmm. And it's just very sad how forgotten a lot of these people have become. I mean, there was really the sense of out of sight, out of mind. You know, a lot of, you know, the media coverage, even from the Chronicle, has focused mostly on those that you see on the streets, right? And a lot of the policies and the press conferences that are held by our public officials are also focused on the very visible homeless population. But, you know, my biggest takeaway is that the people you see on the streets is just the tip of the iceberg. There's thousands of people that are living in these buildings. And because we don't see them, voters aren't really pushing their elected officials to fund more programs for them or to create more policies that would sort of improve their lives. But, you know, you can't help but to think, but if we did put more focus into these buildings, would less people be falling into homelessness? Would this help us? address this issue more efficiently if we just paid more attention to the existing stock that we already had. Joaquin, Trisha, thank you so much for your impressive reporting and for sharing it with me. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Trisha Thadani and Joaquin Palomino are reporters at The Chronicle. Be sure to check out their in-depth San Francisco SRO investigation at sfchronicle.com slash SROS. The multimedia story also features portraits and videos of SRO tenants as well. Thanks to King Kaufman for editing this episode and to you for listening. <laughs>